Hello, everyone, and welcome. Well, my younger brother, Eric, has a very strange gift. Eric always finds money in public. This happened all the time when we were kids. Whether it was a dollar bill in the parking lot or a quarter on the sidewalk, Eric was always the one to find money. It became a family joke. Well, Eric found some money again. And probably the most famous money-finding incident that I can remember is when we were kids and we were swimming in the beachfront area of a lake and Eric came up to the surface with his little goggles on, holding something small in his hand. And we watched in awe as he unfolded a $20 bill that had been folded into the tiniest square possible that he had somehow found through the murky water on the muddy bottom of the lake. I was, I think, nine or 10 years old at the time, and I remember thinking, I don't know what money fairy visited my brother in his sleep to bestow this gift upon him, but I knew I was jealous. And this didn't just happen in childhood. This continues to this day. Just a couple weeks ago, Eric told me he was driving down the road, and he saw something blow over to the shoulder, and he thought to himself, I think that was some money. I mean... When does that ever happen to anybody? That they see something blowing across the road and they say, I think that was money. So he pulled over, gets out of his car, he opened up his hands and a $20 bill gently floated into his hands while the clouds parted and the sun broke through and a heavenly choir started to sing. Okay, some of those details aren't true, but for real, he pulled over and picked up a $20 bill off the side of the road. I don't get it. It's just not fair. Today we are talking about money. And I want to make it very clear to you what my goal is today. My goal is not just to give you some suggestions to help you manage your finances better. And my goal is not to convince you to sell all of your possessions and live out a vow of poverty. My goal today is very simple. I want you and I to really ask ourselves, what kind of a relationship do I have with money? Because while we all have a lot of different thoughts and opinions and feelings about money, money itself is amoral. I've heard it described as being similar to a brick. A brick can be used to build a home for someone or it can be used to smash a store window in a robbery. And money in the same way is neutral. It's amoral. It can be used for good or for bad. And when we think about what the Bible has to say about money, for many of us, the first thing that comes to mind is that the Bible says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. And it goes on to say, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so we know that money is dangerous. And we've seen this played out in people's lives, maybe in our own lives, that the love of money causes problems and causes pain, that it can be used for bad. But we also see in scripture, in Proverbs 3, 9, we're told to honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruit of your crops. And so we know that this verse is about tithing and about giving to the Lord out of our first fruits. But it's important to note that this verse also acknowledges that it's possible for God to be honored by money. Honor the Lord with your wealth. God can be honored by money. It can be used for good in that way. And in Acts 4, we're told about a community of believers that were so generous with each other that there were no needy individuals among them. I mean, can you imagine a community like that? And so money can be used for good or for bad in our lives. But today, we are going to take a look at money, specifically in the context of this series, Enough. How do we get enough 
money. And so our verse for today also comes from the book of Ecclesiastes that we looked at last week. And our verse is chapter 5, verse 10, which reads, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And so the question I want us to ask today is what kind of a relationship do I have with money? And so you might be thinking, Jess, are you asking me if I love money? Because I don't know about you, but to that question, my quick answer is no, of course I don't love money. I mean, I like money. I'm glad when I have money. I'm stressed when I don't have money, but I don't love money. But this is a question that I think requires re-examining over and over throughout our lives. Because while many of us wouldn't admit to loving money, let me ask you these two questions instead. Do you feel like you have enough money right now? And are you satisfied with your current income? Because if your answer to either of those questions is no, no, I don't feel like I have quite enough money right now, or no, I'm not quite satisfied with my income right now, Ecclesiastes 5.10 reminds us that those feelings are often linked to an unhealthy relationship with money. So that's our goal for today, to examine our relationship with money. And so we're going to have a DTR of sorts. Have you ever had one of those, a define the relationship conversation? You really only need to have one of these in a relationship that's complicated. I mean, when you're flat out dating someone, you both know that you're dating. You don't need to have a conversation about it. When you're just friends and there's no evidence whatsoever that it's something more, you don't need to have a DTR. DTRs are for when relationships get complicated. And why these conversations can be so difficult is because when you're asking questions like, are we dating? Are we just friends? Are we friends who are on our way to eventually dating? What are we doing here? Sometimes instead of trying to simply understand and define our feelings, we have to step back and look at our behaviors and then ask, what do our behaviors tell us about the state of our heart? So we're going to examine our relationship with money by asking ourselves some questions about our behavior. And so the first question is this, do you and money ever get caught up in the heat of the moment? How do you spend your money? Do you live by a firm budget? Do you live by a squishy budget? Do you live by a budget at all? And many of us would say, yeah, of course I keep a budget. And 10 years ago, I would have said, of course I keep a budget. But what I really meant back then, and what I found a lot of us mean when we say we budget, is that we track our spending. We, we keep track of what we earn, and then we keep track of what we spend and where we spent it, and then at the end of the month, we pay our bills and square up with everything. But that is not setting a budget. Budgeting is taking the money that you actually have and assigning it to things before the start of each month. Dave Ramsey, who's a financial guru and Christian author, defines budgeting this way. He says, budgeting is giving each dollar a name before the month begins. Now, remember two weeks ago when we talked about time, we said time is finite. And in the same way, money is finite, Remember, we talked about what economists call the opportunity cost. And we know this. If you spend $10 on something, you have $10 less to spend on something else. And of course, we all know that. But American spending habits suggest that we do not really live out that principle. 
And so I just want to use vacations as an example. I'm going to pick on vacations for a minute. According to a 2017 survey conducted by LearnVest, 74% of people say they've gone into debt to pay for a vacation. And the average amount was over $1,100 that people go into debt to pay for these vacations. The same study said 55% of Americans have forgotten or failed to account for vacations in their annual budget. And they pointed out in that same article that given the fact that two-thirds of the respondents said that a week-long vacation would cost more than their monthly rent or mortgage, it's insane that such a large expense would go unplanned for. In an article put out by Forbes magazine that talked about the same issue of Americans overspending on their vacations, they offered what they called a pro tip. And I loved this, a professional tip. They said, tally up how much you spend on vacations in a year. They suggested you look to the past year's numbers for a good benchmark. Then divide by 12 to figure out how much you need to save each month. And I thought, that's not a pro tip. That's called budgeting. Our grandparents would say, what do you mean a pro tip? That's common sense. How are you going to pay for a vacation if you don't save up for one? And the problem is we live in a culture that we've all come to expect a certain standard of living and we start to feel entitled to that standard of living. And so our friends go on a certain type of vacation or our coworkers who we know are in the same pay bracket as us go on a certain type of vacation. And so we start to feel like, well, I work hard. I deserve a vacation. And the reality is if we haven't saved for a vacation, we don't deserve to go on a vacation. I actually came across a travel agency called You Deserve It Vacations. And it's true. There's something in our society that's telling us, you deserve this. You need a vacation. And all of those messages are aimed at our hearts. They're aimed at our emotions. They say, don't even worry about the practical side of things, of where the money's going to come from or how you're going to pay for it. That'll all work out later. The important thing is you need a vacation. You deserve a vacation. And the holidays are similar. I mean, there is just no excuse for us with this because Christmas comes the same time every single year. It doesn't change with the cycles of the moon. There's no surprises. Every December 25th is Christmas Day. And yet, so many Americans know that they want to spend money around the holidays, but they don't save throughout the year to pay for it. And so they start paying for the holidays with credit. A sign that our relationship with money is becoming more romantic than professional is when we start to slip away from the reality that money is finite. Money is finite. And so we start to make financial decisions based on our feelings instead of on the facts. The other day I was in Home Goods and I love Home Goods, don't get me wrong, but it is just a store full of impulse buys. That's all they sell is impulse buys. I mean, who really needs a set of teal creme brulee dishes and a $7 bag of jelly beans? Like there is nothing that you can go in there and buy that you're like, well, I really needed this. It's a store full of impulse buys. And now in my defense, I was there looking for a gift for a friend. I had budgeted 
for said gift and I had brought cash to pay for the gift. I had found the gift and put it in my cart, but I thought, what's the harm in just browsing the store a little bit and seeing what I find? And I came across this really cute piece of wall art that I thought, you know, that would be super cute in our playroom. And it was only 25 bucks. And so I examined it for a while and I put it in my cart, walked around a little bit more and I decided to go ahead and put it back because we hadn't really budgeted for it. And then I walked around a little bit more and I went back to it and I thought, you know, you know, it really is cute. And I put it back in my cart and I don't know if the woman next to me could tell that I was trying to decide on this because she leaned over and she said, that is so darn cute. And I said, I know it is right. I'm trying to decide if I should get it. And she was so sweet. She, she leaned over and just said, oh, it's perfect. You have to get it. Plus, you know, it won't still be here if you come back tomorrow. Now she was so sweet and so sweet that I feel really bad throwing her under the bus like this. But I believe that that is what we are told in our culture. Every possible media channel shouts at us, screams at us, oh, it's perfect. You have to buy it. It won't be here tomorrow. And when we start to think that way, and when we start to spend money that way, money that we have not carefully budgeted, our heart gets involved and we start to have an unhealthy relationship with money. And I believe if our perspective could change, even if it's just in this one area, if after you hear this, you turn this episode off and you don't even listen to the rest of it, I believe if you could just shift your perspective in this one area, you would experience greater financial freedom and peace and a sense of enoughness with your money. And our perspective change would be this. This is what I have, so then how much can I spend on each thing? So yes, when we're budgeting, we start with the big things like food and shelter and clothing, but we have to be honest with ourselves and admit that there is a huge range of what types of food we eat, what kind of shelter we live in, and the price tags of the clothes that we wear. And budgeting gets a bad rap. I mean, we think about budgeting, we think it's restricting. Oh, we'll never have fun again. We'll never get to do anything enjoyable again. And that's simply not true. And in fact, when you budget, every purchase feels better. There's no looming debt or guilt or tough conversation to have with your spouse later on. And when you budget, you decide what your priorities are and you allocate your money accordingly. And so if travel is really important to you, if taking a great vacation is important to you, that's okay. Just budget for it. And it may mean that you decide I'm going to drive a more modest car or I'm going to eat out less because I want to be able to travel. And if saving for your kid's college is important to you, you may decide, well, we're going to live in a more modest house while our kids are growing up because we really want to give them that gift later in life. So what do your spending habits, what does your budgeting or lack of budgeting tell you about how you view money? What does it show you about your relationship with money? Do you and money frequently get caught up in the heat of the moment? Another question we can ask ourselves is, are you currently experiencing any painful consequences related to your finances? See, money is amoral, but we are told in 1 Timothy 6 that money is a terrible lover. She can be plain old mean. If you love money, it will lead you to bad places and bad consequences. I believe one of the biggest lies that our culture has sold us about money is that money is not finite. Every year, the number of Americans is growing that spend more than 100% of their income in a year. The American debt 
crisis is absolutely out of control. Not only is our national debt out of control, our household debts are getting out of control. I just want to read you some of the most striking American debt statistics that were reported in a recent NerdWallet report. They report that the median student loan debt for a person who's attended some college or graduated from college is more than $49,000. The average household credit card debt is about $5,000. The median amount of credit card debt per household is $16,000. The average mortgage debt is nearly $173,000. The average auto loan exceeds $30,000. And personal loans and other miscellaneous debt are more than $10,000 per household. Now, if you're listening and your numbers are lower than all of those, maybe you're feeling good about yourselves. If they're higher than all of those, maybe you're feeling like, well, I already knew I was in a lot of debt, but man, that reminds me, I'm really in trouble. But wherever you fall on the spectrum, household debt is becoming a greater and greater issue in our country. NASDAQ.com put out an article entitled, Household Debt is Enslaving Americans. And they wrote in that article, the economy is improving from 10 years ago when the recession hit, but now that lenders are more willing to hand out money, debt is effectively enslaving the American people. And this concept of debt enslaving people is not original to NASDAQ.com. It comes directly from the Bible. We read in Proverbs 22.7 that the borrower is slave to the lender. And so right here, I just need to stop and give a commercial for a class called Financial Peace University. I mentioned Dave Ramsey earlier. He is a financial author and Christian speaker and teacher, and he offers a class called FPU, Financial Peace University. And this class is offered all over the country, and I encourage you, even if you want to pause the podcast right now and look it up and find a class near you and sign up for it, it will give you freedom. And if you're familiar with Dave Ramsey at all and his writing, you know that this verse in Proverbs 22, seven is really, really important to him. The borrower is slave to the lender. He is passionate about people becoming debt free. And so if you've ever taken the class and if you do take the class in the future, I'll let you know pretty early on, you have what is called a credit card cutting up party and everybody brings their credit cards to the class and passes around a pair of scissors and cuts them up. Now I know some of you are already forming your argument for credit cards in your mind and that's fine, but I want to pick on credit cards for a minute. There have been studies done about what happens in your brain when you pay for items with cash versus paying for them with a credit card. And when you pay for things with a credit card, they see reduced activity in the insula portion of your brain. The insula is a brain region associated with negative feelings or the pain of making a purchase. George Lowenstein is a neuroeconomist at Carnegie Mellon, and he says the nature of credit cards ensures that your brain is anesthetized against the pain of payment. He's saying spending money doesn't feel as bad when you use a credit card. In studying the brain, they see that when you pay cash for something, it actually lights up pain centers in your brain. You acknowledge that I am giving over my hard-earned cash for this item and it registers as pain, but using a credit card does not register as pain. And so it should be no surprise to us that we spend more when we use a credit card. 
And I encourage you, go look up the research on this. It is fascinating. I mean, whether the studies are with people walking into a store and buying actual tangible goods or bidding on tickets to a basketball game, when they are using a credit card, people always, in every case, in every study, spend significantly more than the people who are using cash. And now you and I know that when we use a credit card, it's not like it's monopoly money or fake money or something like that. We know that we are accountable to pay that bill. The problem is our neural synapses don't seem to know it. And so even though we know it logically, our spending habits are affected by the type of payment that we use. And now we are entering into this brave new world of paying for things with our phones, with our smartphones. A researcher named Avni Shah, who works at the University of Toronto, he's on the cutting edge of these experiments looking at the effects of paying for things by smartphone. And he says the smartphone doesn't even really register as payment in our minds. While credit cards are less painful than using cash, in our minds, a smartphone is a social device, and so it's not even registering as payment at all. And so if using a credit card is like using Monopoly money, using your smartphone to pay for something is like using unicorn fairy dust or something. It is less painful than using a credit card. And when we step away from the stone cold, sober business relationship with our money into one that is just squishier, it's spontaneous, it's fun, it makes us feel good in the moment, but then it leaves us with the harsh consequences of debt and it ultimately leaves us less fulfilled. That researcher, Shah, has also found that people who experience the pain of paying with cash are more satisfied with their purchases and they think less about what they didn't buy. Using cash and cutting up our credit cards was just one of the many ways that FPU absolutely changed our lives. And probably the biggest way that it changed our lives was helping us get debt free. And I thought the debt that we had was totally normal. I mean, everyone I knew had student debt and everyone I knew took on car payments to pay for their car. It was just a normal way of life. But he was preaching something new, that it was possible and superior to live a life completely debt-free other than a reasonable mortgage. And if you've ever heard his radio show, you know that people call into his radio show when they've finally gotten debt-free and they yell, freedom, like from Braveheart. And the argument was so compelling and the principles were so simple and so obvious, but yet seemed so countercultural that we were compelled to try it, to just do everything we could to follow his curriculum to see if it was possible for us to really live that way. And I will always remember that moment of sitting on the couch in our apartment, pushing the submit button together on our last student loan and yelling freedom when we were finally debt free. And we knew in that moment from now on, we want to live in the sober reality that what we have, God has given to us. And that's what we have. That money is finite. And so to all the voices in our culture that shouted us from every corner of society saying, you can afford this, or you deserve that, or you really do need this, we decided we would say, well, look, here's what we actually have. And so how are we going to spend it? And then we've enjoyed living in the freedom and the guilt-free experience of spending the money that God has given us on the things that he's helped us decide in advance we're going to spend them on. We have experienced 
again and again the peace of enough, of having enough money. And so lastly, as we get ready to close, you want to know what the real key to developing a healthy relationship with money is? It's to give it away. To put this one in relational terms, how exclusive are you and your money? Because as much as I believe that getting out of debt will set you free, and as much as I believe that budgeting, even though it seems constricting, actually leads to freedom financially, giving money away is so counterintuitive, but it is the best way to establish a healthy relationship with money. And so I want to encourage you to consider tithing. Tithing is an Old Testament word that means giving 10% away to the church. And I've heard so many people, so many Christians say that, oh, that's part of the Old Testament law and Jesus never told his followers to give 10% specifically, so that's just not a thing anymore. And I would just encourage you to consider that when Jesus was teaching his followers in his famous Sermon on the Mount, some of the most well-known Old Testament laws came up. And in every category across the board, Jesus upped the ante on the Old Testament. He said, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. I'm telling you, don't even hate your brother. It's like committing murder in your heart. He said, I know that you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even look at someone lustfully. It's like committing adultery with them in your heart. And Jesus is saying, don't you see that the laws that I've given to you are gifts? That I'm, they've been given to you out of love? I didn't tell you not to murder or to commit adultery to try to limit your freedom or make your life miserable. I did it because I know that those things ultimately steal your freedom. And I want to offer you a way of life that leads to peace and contentment, a way of life that is aligned with what I designed you for. And money is no different. And so if the question that you ask is, well, do I really have to give 10%? I would ask you to consider, what if you just treated 10% as a baseline and only became more generous from there? And I can tell you from experience that giving up front as the first financial decision you make when your paycheck comes in will be the critical step in setting you free. It is the thing that sets you on the path to experiencing enough when it comes to your money. And so whether you are busting your butt to get out of debt or whether you're carefully trying to manage your budget and get a handle on your spending and on your savings, give up front. Let it be the first line item on your budget. Give up front. Because that verse in Proverbs 3 that I referenced early on in the episode, where we're told to honor the Lord with our wealth, with the first fruits of all our crops, that's verse 9. And verse 10 reads, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. See, giving up front communicates to God that you believe He can do more with 90% of your income than you can do with 100% of your income. And if you're in a place right now where 100% of your income doesn't feel like enough, I know the thought of living on 90% feels flat out impossible. But my experience has been that giving up front is the path 
that leads to enough. And the 90% will be enough. Somehow, miraculously, it is enough. And the time that I can remember seeing this very clearly was shortly after we'd gotten debt-free and committed ourselves to living debt-free other than a reasonable mortgage for the rest of our lives, we got pregnant with our third little one. And we had paid off both of our cars, but they both happened to be small little Hondas. And we knew there was no way we were going to fit three car seats into the back seat of either of those vehicles. And we liked the idea of being able to bring this baby home from the hospital with us. And so we started saving aggressively for a used minivan. And we're hoping to buy it sometime before this third child would be born. While we started saving aggressively and then looking at all of the different options, trying to figure out, using consumer reports, figuring out the best van for the best value used, and we had identified the kind of van that we felt like would be the best fit for our needs as a next purchase. And so we started saving with that goal in mind. We thought, okay, this generation of that kind of car costs this much money. Let's save and save and save and save. And all the while, we're looking at all the local outlets, everything from the local car dealerships to Craigslist trying to find a car that fit this description that would be at the price point that we were saving for. Well, one came up on the market in January and it was being sold for several thousand dollars less than the blue book. And we thought what a great opportunity it would be to get it for a few thousand dollars cheaper than what we were thinking we'd be able to get it for. So we went out and saw it and it was perfect in every way. The only problem was we were a few thousand dollars shy And so we went home and talked about it and talked about it and tried to figure out how we could make it work. Is there any way we could scrape together that much money before this thing was gone? And ultimately we realized, no, there just, there just isn't enough money for that right now. And so we started entertaining the idea of taking out a loan from the local bank. And we knew we could probably get an interest-free loan. It would just be a couple thousand dollars. We could pay it off before the baby even came but we couldn't shake the idea that we had just gotten debt-free. We had just made the commitment to live debt-free moving forward. And so we let the van pass us by. And we went back to aggressively saving. And each month as we looked for a vehicle that was as good of a deal, there just didn't seem to be anything that was as good of a deal as that particular van. And all the while, every month, giving became difficult. It wasn't really a question for us whether or not we were going to give. But that line item, I just couldn't help but look at it and think, man, that would really help us get to that goal. But we knew this is what God calls us to do, is to give up front, and then he will provide. He will provide. And so just a few weeks before our little one was born, we saw God bring money together in incredible ways. Someone from our church handed us an anonymous envelope with some cash in it. My husband got a call from a company that we used to do some freelance work for that we hadn't worked for in over a year, but they had several gigs that they needed covered, and we were able to scrape together several more hundred dollars, and we were able to save just enough for the van that we thought we could afford. Now we just needed someone to sell it at that price. And on Craigslist, up in New Jersey, someone posted the exact same van, same color, same interior, same features as the van that had come up in January for the exact same price. We drove up to New Jersey, we test drove it, we paid cash for that sucker and drove it home and drove our little one home from the hospital in that van. And you know what? We could have gotten that loan to cover it, 
and we would have paid off the loan as best we could. But living in that dependence of saying, God, we are going to commit ourselves to giving to you first, believing that you can do more with 90% than we can do with 100%. We are trusting you that you're going to provide. And then he provided and our faith grew. And that was just one of many stories that my husband and I have experienced in our marriage that now have grown our confidence in God, knowing that whatever he's given us, it's enough. It's enough. He sees us. He sees you. He cares about you. He knows your needs. And he wants you to have a healthy relationship with money. So do you and money get caught up in the heat of the moment? Are you living with some of the negative consequences of financial decisions you've made? And how exclusive are you with your money? I hope that thinking through those questions helps you get to the heart of what kind of a relationship you have with money. And wherever you are on this journey with your money, I encourage you to look into Financial Peace University and take that class because it will bring you freedom in your life. But I don't believe that God just gives us these principles so that we can experience financial peace and enoughness in our own lives. I believe he provides for us in these ways so that we can be generous with others. And one thing I think is really cool about my little brother Eric is that even though he somehow always finds this money, he immediately starts thinking about how he can use it to bless somebody else. And so when he told me about the $20 bill on the side of the road, he said he first started thinking about his wife. Maybe he could take her out on a little date or buy her some flowers or something. And I said, well, did you do any of those things? And he said, well, no. And I said, so what'd you do? And he sort of reluctantly told me, well, that same day, he was presented with a need. And he gave the money away. Money itself is not good or bad, but what kind of a relationship do you have with money? Because whether it blows into the palm of your hand on the side of the road, or it's your hard-earned paycheck being direct deposited into your account every other week, God wants to lead you in your finances. And his ways may be counterintuitive, but they lead to freedom. And his laws give life. So whatever your next step is today, I pray that you'll take it and that you will trust God with your finances, knowing that he is the one who gives us enough of what we need. So thanks so much for being here today. Please join us again next time as we continue this series by talking about enough stuff. And until then, remember to dig deep. Dig deep.